0: Hey everyone, it's Chris from Reluctant Psalm Podcast. Welcome back. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about the ride world of Riesling. Sorry, uh, I don't know, I'm just being ridiculous because I'm sitting in my room alone, like uh, every podcast I do. Anyways, hope to get a guest on here at some point. Things have just kind of fallen through. Um, you know, a lot of updates here in San Francisco for uh, work, for school, for everything, Um Given the uh, second or third wave or whatever we're on right now, uh, indoor dining has uh, ceased to um, be in San Francisco, so we're all back to outdoor dining. However, it is winter uh, and it is getting cold, so it's a little bit of rain, uh, there's a little bit of cold weather, but for the most part, guests seem to be just happy to still come out and dine and have some sort of regularity. So uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue to work, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue to taste wine. On the last podcast, I think I mentioned, or maybe the previous podcast, I think I mentioned that I'm now a wine director at a restaurant, and the restaurant is a Japanese restaurant. So not a huge wine focus uh, as much as a sake focus, but you know what? That's what I'm here for. I'm here to make it a little bit more wine focused. I'm here to grow the list. I'm here to uh, give my input and a little bit of my uh, knowledge to grow things uh, and and educate the staff. Um, But it is so much fun to taste with all of the distributors, something that I haven't had the exposure to do uh, previously. I was working at a few different restaurants in San Francisco, never had been the wine director, head SOM, whatever you want to call me. I'm basically the wine guy, also the bottle rat, also everything for wine. Um, the only thing I don't do is pour the things by the glass. And also because shifts are so limited right now and, and restaurants can't really afford anything. I'm also bouncing between being a server and also, um, uh, handling the wine program. So kind of fun, kind of challenging. Uh, but all in all, again, I'm just very grateful to have something to do. I'm very grateful to my distributors. Uh, they're really great. I've been tasting with uh, reps from Skernick, I've been tasting with reps from Regal, reps from Young's, uh, I've been tasting with reps from, from all over the place uh, and so many fun books and everybody's just excited to be out there and be working and, and have the opportunity to taste wine and open bottles and for the most part, uh, every time I ask a rep to bring something or I suggest something to bring for a tasting... They bring a few other things, which is a lot of fun because I have the opportunity to taste uh, many things that I wasn't even thinking of. I wasn't even knowing that I would have the opportunity to try. And I'm just very grateful for uh, their ability to remain open-minded and excited about their job in such a trying time. Now, and also plenty of other distributors and, and plenty of other reps that are, are really fantastic. Those are just the ones that jumped out in my head, so... Um, anyways, that being said, uh, as I said earlier, we'll be talking about Riesling today. Something that inspired the discussion for Riesling today, uh, is this one wine that's gotten wedged into my brain and hasn't gotten out of my brain for the last three weeks. Uh, it's 2007, Selbach Oster, uh, Zeltinger Sonnenhauer Riesling, uh, that's a a cabinet, uh, quality. Um, so for anybody that's listening to this podcast and is very educated, I apologize for my, uh, horrible pronunciation of all of these wonderful German words. And for anybody that's listening to this podcast that doesn't know anything that I just said, except maybe 2007 and maybe Riesling, uh, I'm here to help. I'm here to talk about these things and put my name on the line. Uh, and and my ability to be incorrect on the line, which is something that I I absolutely love, uh, to try and educate us all, uplift the community of wine. So let's break down the label a little bit. I'm going to post this on my Instagram. I'm also probably going to post it, you know, other places. Um, But you'll see the label, and the label can be kind of confusing. Um, Like many old world wines, if you're not... Really familiar with regions, you're not really familiar with the types of labeling that certain countries use. There's there's a lot of different practices. Every country does it a little different. Um, Not many are as straightforward as, let's say, um, the United States with Cabernet, uh, Zinfandel, Merlot, Chardonnay. A lot of them name it after certain places. A lot of them name it after certain vineyards. A lot of them have. Many different names for the same grape. Um, So it can get kind of confusing. But anyways, this particular wine, uh, 2007 being vintage, I recently, last Thanksgiving, I had the opportunity to try a 2003 Riesling. It was my first time tasting uh, a really old Riesling, honestly. And and in the wine world, in the distributor world and and supplier world and many people that I know uh, across the wine world... Having old Riesling is kind of the pinnacle of tasting an old wine. Yeah, it's great to taste a 30-year-old white burgundy, but the likelihood of it being in a the condition that it's meant to be drank in is probably not great. And even though that wine will still have really great presence and really great quality, and, and you'll be able to taste a lot of really amazing things in that wine, there's still almost almost always going to be oxidative characteristics, which is totally fine. I mean... It's kind of to be expected. And, you know, also tasting old Riesling will have oxidative characteristics too. Um, but I don't know. they Rieslings seem to hold together a lot better than, let's say, other white wines. Um, so, and even, I don't know, I, I've heard of people drinking 50-year-old Rieslings, 60-year-old Rieslings that still drink really well. I haven't personally drank any of those. So I'm here to tell you that my recent addiction has been Old white wine. And when I say old white wine, I don't mean white wine that's really bad. I just mean white wine that's beginning the stage of uh, the phases of oxidation. So, this 2007 Riesling that I had recently, uh, again on my previous podcast, I was uh, going through, suffering through, uh, no, attempting Sober October. I was just trying to be a good boy for a month, which uh, didn't happen. Uh, When I was with suppliers and when I was tasting with people, I was spitting, but, uh, you know, every now and then I would have a beer here and there. So it wasn't a really strict thing, but it was just a good way to kind of curb the uh, overall consumption of alcohol that was going on. And by no means am I an alcoholic. I am an alcohol enthusiast. Uh, I do have certain things that I will not drink, but there is plenty of things that I will drink. Almost everything that I will drink. I don't know if that really separates me from being an alcoholic. I'm just trying to make myself feel better. So just just shut up and, and, and listen. Uh, so anyways, 2007 Selbach Officer Zeltinger Sonnenur Riesling cabinet from the Mosel. So uh, the first part I want to break down is Zeltinger Sonnenur. So Zeltingen rachtig is a municipality in the Mosel known for its Riesling. So municipality, kind of like a town, I don't really know the exact description uh, or the exact definition of that word, but um, basically a a small area uh, that is known for a reason. Um, It's the sole, uh, the sole gross lager in the region uh, is the Sonenur, which is known as the sundial and Grosslager is a great location, is what that translates to in German. Um, Kind of their way of saying uh, Grand Cru, Premier Cru, many other classification styles in so many other countries, but Grosslager is generally a a well-thought-of area to produce wine. And Sonenur is known as the uh, Sundial Vineyard. Um, It's known for its blue Devonian slate uh, soil composition. So the Soil composition, uh, I may have gotten into before, plays a big part in wine. Um, They call it terroir, the taste of the land. But soil composition can have an effect on the amount of heat that the soil retains from the sunlight, the amount of water retention, the amount of difficulty it is for the vines to grow. There's so many different things that, that soil composition can affect when it comes to wine. Um, but blue Devonian slate is not incredibly common, uh, and also the regions in the Mosul are generally incredibly steep, uh, which encourages water runoff, which does not encourage high water retention in the soil. Uh, but as well, um, as the water retention, uh, the Mosul is also known for, well, the, the Mosul river. So the river kind of snakes back and forth quite a bit, Uh, But the importance of the river is that uh, it reflects sunlight. So there's really steep hillsides, uh, but the reflection of the light from the surface of the water actually heats up the grapes in a different way. And given that this is one of the most northern growing regions in the whole world, uh, it is to be considered one of the coolest as well um, because it's so far north. So the Mosul River runs through France. It runs through Luxembourg. It's called, like, Mosele, Mosol. I'm not sure. But in Germany, it's called the Mosul. Uh, it's one of 13 different German wine-growing regions. Um, but again, the, the importance of the river itself is the uh, um, amount of light that it reflects onto the grapes uh, and helps heat the grapes. And the reason that that's important is because it helps the grapes gain a higher level of residual sugar. So... Without getting too nerdy, the higher the sugar in the wine, the higher the alcohol can eventually become. Um, so the heat's really important. If there was no heat, the sugar wouldn't develop. It would The grapes would have a really hard time ripening. When a fruit ripens, it has high sugar content. So the amount of sugar is super important in wine production. Um, Selbach Oster is the first part of the name of this wine after the vintage, obviously. Vintage being the year that the grapes were harvested, not necessarily the year that the, that the wine was put in a bottle or anything like that. Silbach Oster is a really famous um, producer. They've been around for over 400 years. Uh, about 98% of what they plant is Riesling or what they grow is Riesling. Uh, And the really interesting thing, and maybe it's not interesting in this region. Again, my my knowledge of German wine and my my knowledge of wine in general is quite limited. You know, I may know more than you if you're listening right now, but I promise you, if you put in work and you taste stuff regularly and you open your mind to the education and you actively seek out the education, you could surpass me. I, I am not sitting here grinding every day like some really amazing people I've met and, and some really amazing people that I know that, that are just really hungry for, for this. I wish that I had that drive, but you know there's a lot of things going on in life that I'm balancing between school, between work. And you, know, I hope to one day get that, that focus on wine uh, that would allow me to um, look at myself as I look at others. I don't know if any of us can do that, but it would be great if any of us could do that. If you could love someone like you love, if you could love yourself like you love someone else, it would be a really beautiful world. But anyways, um, so the weirdest thing for me when I was looking into Selbach Osser was that they use mostly native yeast. So in the fermentation world, anything fermented, yeast eats sugar, right? So a lot of wineries... Italian wineries, French wineries, California wineries use synthetic yeast and synthetic yeast isn't necessarily a bad thing, it just allows for a more stable fermentation process it allows for you to have a little bit more control over the time of fermentation how aggressively the wine ferments how much sugar is is consumed by the yeast i.e. how much ethanol is produced in the wine or alcohol is produced in the wine but native yeast is not something that to my knowledge, again, however limited it may be, is regularly used in the actual process of fermentation. Generally, the, the grapes are washed, and then they're using uh, an, an artificial yeast uh, or synthetic yeast, or maybe they're using a synthetic yeast along with a native yeast. Um, but most of their wines are produced with uh, native yeast, which is just says that, The wine could come out a really different way every year, Um, but I think that Selbach-Oster does a really fantastic job of understanding the fact that from vintage to vintage, from vineyard to vineyard, and from varietal to varietal, that the wines will be different. They will be, and that's okay. It's okay to have a different wine every vintage. It's okay to have one vineyard site taste different than another vineyard site, because that's what wine is. Wine is about the place, right? Wine is about the people that are from that region, what they cook, what they like to eat. I mean, that's, that's what wine is. If it's different, that's a good thing. So using native yeast, I think is a really cool way to just kind of accept the fact that the wine will ferment in the way that it naturally would ferment. And you're allowing it to be a little bit more expressive. So, uh, let's see, what else was I going to talk about? So, Uh, interestingly enough, back to the Mosul, uh, aside from the reflective light, uh, from the river surface and the steep hillsides, um, the Mosul has been used for growing wine for a really long time. Uh, the Romans, uh, founded the Trier, the town of Trier in 16 BC, um, and it's said that shortly thereafter that the Roman, uh, soldiers started planting Riesling, um, to make wine. Uh, so wine in Europe is kind of a thing that evolved over necessity and didn't evolve over just want. Nobody you know, went to Italy and decided, I love wine. I'm going to plant wine in Germany. If anything, it was more like oh, the soldiers need something to drink. So let's start planting grapes here and let's start fermenting wine so that way when our soldiers aren't on duty, they can have something to drink and have a great time. Um and and that's kind of like where it started. So in, in Trier around 16 BC, I don't want to say it's exactly 16 BC, uh they started planting Riesling. So you're talking about almost 240 years, uh 2,040 years of uh, grapes being planted in this region. Um uh, another interesting thing about this wine is Riesling in general, when people think of Riesling, they think of something that's really sweet. And when we use the word sweet in in the wine world, I think it sometimes can be misconstrued. Sweet would generally indicate high residual sugar. High residual sugar would actually indicate the amount of sugar in the wine, not necessarily the fruit presence in the wine. So if you're drinking the wine and the wine tastes like you know, nectar or juice or something like that. It might not mean that the wine is actually sweet. It might just mean that you're perceiving it as a sweet wine. So anyways, now that that's out, um, Riesling was a wine that was harvested in a cool region and grown in a cool region, remember? So when it gets cold and it's cold outside and it's cold in your cellar and it's cold in your house, I mean, maybe not your house because if it's really cold, you might just freeze to death and die. But if it's cold in your cellar, it's cold where you're storing the wine in the barrels, the yeast will stop fermenting because it's too cold. It's like putting something in the refrigerator to keep it good. You're stopping the fermentation. You're stopping the expiration of that product, right? So when it would get really cold outside, the fermentation process would stop. The amount of residual sugar in the wine would remain high. So Riesling has almost always been considered a sweet wine because it always has been a sweet wine. It, the fermentation wasn't able to fully complete. Um, another really fun thing that I thought uh, or that I found out was that in um, in Trier they've actually found uh, or they have um, old Winsendorfer, which is a community cellar where... The people of the town were growing their grapes, harvesting their grapes, fermenting their wine, and then there was actually a community cellar where everybody that grew wine, uh, grew grapes, and made wine could store their wine throughout the year, um, throughout you know not just the year but throughout time, and and try their wines over time and have something to drink, uh, but also was accessible to the rest of the community. Um, Anyways, I thought that was really fun. I thought that was really exciting to, to read about. I want to do a little bit more research in that. I, I doubt I'll ever do a podcast on it just because it's a little too geeky or dorky. But if you want me to send you what I find on uh, Winsendorfer, uh, let me know. Shoot me an email. Uh, Chris the Cork Dork at gmail.com. ReluctantSom, uh, Instagram. Um, you know, just... Hit me up. There's plenty of ways to get a hold of me or call me or text me if you have my phone number. Um, and yeah. Okay, so uh, the other part of the label that I wanted to talk about was Cabinet. Cabinet is something that you should see fairly often if you're looking at German Riesling. Not all the time, uh, but it, it, I would say it's one of the more common um, label classifications. So Cabinet wines can come from the Czech Republic. Uh, or Austria as well, Um, but we're going to be speaking specifically about uh, German uh, cabinet wines. So cabinet wines are generally uh, fully ripened grapes that are harvested during the main harvest. Uh, It's the lowest level of Prada Katzwein. So, again, uh, apologies to the more experienced individuals in this podcast for my horrible pronunciations, and uh, apologies to my Uh, lesser experienced uh, listeners of the podcast for using austere, uh, interesting words. Um, But I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get there. So Prada is a classification level from German winemaking that designates certain harvests of grapes. It's kind of like a quality control mark but in the level that the grapes are harvested. It has almost everything to do with the grapes being harvested and less to do with the amount of grapes that are grown in that region or, you know, let's say organic this or organic that, the amount of alcohol in the finished product. This is almost exclusively harvest. It does have to do a little bit with, like, the fermentation process and when it starts, how much moisture content is in the must of the wine. Anyway, it's too far off topic. So, there's six total levels of protocots fine, cabinet being the lowest level. Uh, but I still think that protocots fine, uh, I'm sorry, cabinet can be really really fantastic. Spate um, spätlese is considered to be a late harvest. Uh auslese is a selected harvest. barren auslese is a selected Uh, select berry harvest Uh, and Trockenbauer now is a select dry berry harvest Um, and then ice vine go figure is ice wine Um, ice vine means that the grapes are harvested when they're frozen Um, the reason that farmers do this is they can crush the grapes they can get out juice and high residual sugar if you've ever had an ice wine you know that it's pretty sweet Um, generally very syrupy uh, that's the level of concentration that's going on in the wine. Uh, for the others, a select harvest would be a certain vineyard. A select berry harvest would be individual clusters. And a select dry berry harvest would be uh, harvesting the grapes um, at their driest level. Generally dry is a lower uh, sugar content. Uh, so again, cabinet uh, being fully ripened. Uh, the wines are generally... Uh, semi-sweet uh, with high acidity, crisp acidity. Maybe not screaming high acidity, but a nice level of acidity. acidity. Uh, but they can also be dry if designated. So if you see the word trocken on a bottle of German Riesling, trocken is the word for dry, unless you see the wine trocken Baron aus which is generally quite sweet. So again, really confusing. If you have questions, shoot me a message. But the last thing on the on the label, aside from the vintage, is Riesling. So, Riesling is a white wine grape. Uh, at this point, Riesling is grown all over the place. Uh, there's some really fantastic Rieslings in Australia. Um, Penfolds Bin 51, I think, is one that I had at one point. I was blind-tasted on it when I was working for one of the larger distributors, and I swore on my life that it was Alsatian Riesling. Alsatian Riesling comes from northwestern France. But anyways... I swore that it was Alsatian Riesling. I, I would have put my life on it. I, I, I snapped my fingers. I knew the wine off the top of my head. I would have bet my firstborn on it. I, I was really all in. And when they showed us the wine and I realized that it was Australian Riesling, I felt really, really stupid. But again, I love being proven wrong. Open opened up my eyes to realize that just because a wine is waxy and, and has a little bit of petrol to it and is high in residual sugar doesn't mean that it's Alsatian Riesling. Uh, I think that that's something that certain uh, wine education classes get wrong is, is that they focus too much on a classic expression of a grape being that you know Riesling can either come from uh, two or three different areas in the world and don't really realize that Riesling's grown everywhere. ...all over the place. There's some really great Rieslings from Washington, uh, plenty of great Rieslings from from California and Oregon, Um, but I think that the more classic expression of Rieslings come from uh, France and Germany as well as Austria. Uh, So Riesling is considered to be highly terroir expressive. Uh, Again, being grown in cooler climates, uh, generally the wine develops... uh, it doesn't ripen as quickly... Uh, So there's generally higher acidity, and um, the wine is normally more focused on minerality uh, and acidity, and less focused on fruit presence and and, an opulent uh, fruit palate. Aside from being highly uh, terroir expressive, it's also considered to be one of the top three white wines, alongside Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. So Chardonnay, obviously everybody knows California Chardonnay, but also White Burgundy. White Burgundy is considered to be like the crack of the wine world. If you start drinking White Burgundy, there's nothing that's better than White Burgundy. And when I say that, I don't mean that as a personal note. I just mean that that's what people say. For me right now, my kick, as I said, is old Riesling. I love old Riesling. I really love old Riesling. Okay, I'm trailing off. So... Sauvignon Blanc. Most people know New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and most people know California Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but Sancerre, obviously from the Loire Valley, is something that I think that I covered before. I don't think that I covered Sancerre specifically, but I covered the Loire. Uh, and Sancerre, uh, something that uh, many people should be aware of. Uh, but also Bordeaux. Bordeaux grows a lot of really great Sauvignon Blanc. It's considered to be the noble grape of Bordeaux. Uh, one of the noble white grapes of Bordeaux, specifically. Um, so. For Riesling, something that most people consider to be a really sweet wine, to even be considered to be in the same realm of existence as Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, I think is a great statement to the complexity of this grape. And I also think that it's a great lesson to be learned that the wine, no grape should be considered to be one note or unimpressive or inexpressive. It should be just that maybe you don't like that wine from that particular region. Um, the wines are so versatile and, and and the grapes are so adaptable. In most cases, there's plenty of grapes that are hard to grow, but we should never just mark out a producer or a grape from our life and say that, you know, I won't like anything from this person. Um, that's it. I think that that would be a, a disservice to uh, to yourself. Um the other wine I wanted to talk about, guess what? Da 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 da, da Riesling. Again. Uh, so this is different. This is Tatamer Riesling uh, from uh, Vindenburg. Uh, Tatamer Vindenburg Riesling uh, from Santa Barbara County. Um, it's not all from Santa Barbara County, but most of it's from Santa Barbara County. Uh, the, I had this wine recently. I was really impressed. Uh, the previous restaurant I was working at with the the legend that I was working with, he had Tatimer Gruner Veltliner on the menu. And I saw it all the time, and I never tried it. And I never really thought about trying it because at the time I just had this really big excuse my French, I had this really big hard on for, for Alsatian, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Gruner Veltliner from the Vakau. And I was not interested in trying anything else. I don't know why. Again, I just kind of closed my mind to it. I think we all close our mind to plenty of things every day, but something that I'm trying to work on, especially with wine, because, hey, you know what? That's what you guys are here to listen to. And if I don't try more wine, then well, I'm just wasting your time. Uh, but don't worry. After Sober October, I've been catching up for sure. Um, so hopefully more podcasts soon. So uh, Tatimer, Vindenberg, Riesling, about 400 cases produced I tried this recently at a family gathering. Um, It was really, really, really phenomenal. Uh, The second I saw the label at the store that I was at, I knew that I had to buy it because I had passed on buying that Gruner Veltliner. And I just saw the label and I I asked, is that Tatamer? Yes. What is it? It's the Riesling. They had the Gruner also. But I figured, you know what? I may have another opportunity to have the Gruner, but I really want to try this Riesling. So I bought a bottle of Riesing, about $22, $24. I can't remember exactly how much I paid for it, but well worth it. Uh, There's a lot of stone fruit, uh, great, great uh, minerality to it. Um, There was a little bit of botrytis, which, you know, at some point I hope to cover in another podcast, uh, but kind of a little bit of funk to it. Uh, But it was a really, really fun wine, and I loved it. And that being said, the place that I got it from was very special to me. Okay, I've been there once, but it's special to me. Just trust me. Just trust me. So, I went out for lunch. Don't worry, everybody. I was eating outdoors. Yes, I was wearing my mask. Um, And I walked past this bottle shop. And I look in, and it's really beautiful, really exceptional. It's in Pack Heights here in San Francisco. And... Uh, it's called Verve Wine, a Verve Wine Bar, a Verve Wine Shop. I can't remember exactly, but Verve, V E R V E. Look it up, go there. There's one in New York. There's one coming soon in Chicago. I just found that out. Not that I've ever been to New York or Chicago, but one day I hope to go. And when I go, I would really like to visit the Verves there. Because from my understanding, the Verve in New York sells food to pair with their wine, which is dope because their wine selection was insane. So I have gone all over San Francisco trying to find this particular producer from northeastern Italy called Giuseppe Quintarelli. And I could buy Giuseppe Quintarelli online if I really wanted to, but I don't want to. I want to find a bottle and I want to buy a bottle from a shop because I don't know why. I just am limiting myself in the way that I could purchase wine. So I walk up to the shop. There's a cart in front of the front door because obviously it's a small shop. And it's not like I'm going to be tasting wine in there anyways because technically that would be considered a bar. Bars are closed. So I stand at the front door. A, a really nice young man comes and asks me if you can help me. I say, hey, man, I'm just looking, you know, and and uh, I just wanted to check some stuff out. And I go and I, I look at at the very far back right of the shop. And I look way up high, not way up high, eight feet. I'm exaggerating just because this is an important story to me. About eight feet up, they need a ladder to get there, is this label. And I can recognize this label. This is Giuseppe Quintarelli. This is a wine I've been looking for for eight months, maybe longer. I just looked at my tasting book, actually, and it's been over a year since I had my first bottle of Giuseppe Quintarelli. So I've probably been looking for this wine for over a year, and I see this label from, I don't know, maybe eight to ten feet away, and I know instantly that's just heavy Quintarelli. And I've asked tons of shops. I've gone to Total Wine at Bevmo and all those guys, and and it, you know I know that they're big, and I'm not expecting them to have like small small producers, uh, but it's a well known producer. They're very esteemed. They make incredible Amarone, um, incredible wines from the Valpolicella region, region uh, again, in northeastern Italy. And I see it, and I ask the guy, is that Giuseppe Quintarelli? And he goes, yeah, we just got him in recently. And I go, really? He goes, yeah, we have several wines from them. Okay, you guys, now I'm in heaven. I I, I just am seeing, seeing red. Well, I guess seeing red means I'm mad. I'm, I'm blacking out at this point. And I'm just thinking of all of the money that I want to spend on this wine. And obviously it's, you know, COVID. I'm not rolling in money by any means. Uh, But I I know that I have to have a bottle. Have to. But I control my impulse. I talk to the guy for a minute. He's super nice. I look to the right of the shop and you can see all of the white burgundies. We talk about some of the white burgundies for a minute. I look to the left. I see Tatumer. I see the Riesling Vendenberg riesling that i ended up buying i ended up consuming with my family everyone really enjoyed it i loved it i am a huge fan of the wine uh, but beyond that i also ended up getting a bottle of giuseppe quintarelli because i have no self-control if i had self-control i would probably make more podcasts and i'd probably drink less wine but hey you know just just love me for me can you just love me for me please anyways i just want to give a big shout out to vervine uh 2358 Fillmore Street in San Francisco, Pack Heights. And I also wanted to give a shout-out to their New York location, even though I've never been there, to New York, that is, or especially not Verve in New York. The, The list that these guys have is insane. It's insane. The wines that these people have in their store is really fantastic. The producers are incredible. I mean, there's a lot of care and a lot of time that goes into picking these wines. It's not just you know, Randall's or or Kroger or whatever grocery store you have wine. It's really nice stuff. And you know what? That being said, I'm not shitting on grocery store wine because grocery store wine is the entry into the wine world. If you're drinking a bottle Barefoot, hey, man, I'm happy because you're drinking wine. That's important. And you know what? You know what I hope? I hope that you drink Barefoot. I hope you like it. And then I hope you try something else. Try 14 Hands. Yeah, drink 14 Hands. I like 14 hands. Cool. Now what's next? Try something else. Try something else. Try something else. We'll grow together. You know, not everybody wants to spend $20 on a bottle of wine. But if you do and you go to a really cool bottle shop, I'm sure that, you know, most people will be able to steer you to a really nice bottle of something that you'll hopefully enjoy. Uh, If you have a little extra money to spend, which I know it's a little tight for some people... Unless you're, unless you own Amazon, or own Sony, or own Microsoft, then it's not tight for you, you know? You're doing pretty well. People are at home, they're bored, they need delivery, they need video games. You know what else they need? They need wine. Verve is doing a wine club, and even though I have an absurd amount of wine that I've squeezed into my very small apartment in San Francisco that's Mind you, very expensive, the apartment, not the wine. I'm still really considering signing up for their monthly wine club. The monthly wine club is $95 a month and includes shipping. Uh, $95 a month, it's either free shipping or free pickup if you're in San Francisco, I guess, or in New York, maybe a certain area in New York, I'm not really sure, Um, but free in-store pickup. Uh, But at $95, you get four bottles and the four bottles, guess what, are picked out by a master psalm. I'm sure that if you start getting a monthly shipment and you start getting four bottles from a master psalm that is part of this business, you'll be learning. If you want to learn, sometimes you got to invest a little money. This podcast is free for sure. I'm not making any money. I'm lame. I don't have sponsors, guys. Like if you're listening to me, I'm just happy that you're here. But if you want to spend a little money, you want to learn something about wine, sign up for Verve Wines Wine Club or sign up for any wine club. Maybe not any of the super cheap ones, because sometimes they don't have the winery's best interest at heart. But if you sign up for like a really cool little bottle shops wine club, I'm sure that they'll be supporting uh, wineries. And at the end of the day, that's what we all need, especially in these trying times. You have to think. Most of these wineries are selling their wine to restaurants. And restaurants are closed, baby. Restaurants are gone. We're suffering right now. And I'll tell you what, we're not selling a ton of wine. And if we're not selling a ton of wine, we're not buying a ton of wine. If we're not buying a ton of wine, the wineries aren't selling a ton of wine. If the wineries aren't selling a ton of wine, they're losing money. So get out there. Buy some bottles. Drink some stuff. All right. That's the end of the show for me, guys. Love you. Stay safe.